You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ann Lane, who has quite an impressive background. Ann holds a PhD in medicine from the prestigious University College London and an executive MBA from the renowned Molson Business School in Montreal. Following her research at UCL and Harvard Medical School, Anne joined RTP Pharma Inc. in Montreal, where she gained experience in outlicensing and preparing valuations of the company's portfolio for public listing. In 2000, Anne joined UCL Ventures, and she's been with UCLB ever since, where she's now the CEO. Anne was also previously the chair of TenU, an international collaboration of 10 leading technology transfer offices. Anne also acts as director and interim CEO for several of UCB's spin-out companies and oversees the company's licensing activity. I'm excited to have her with us today to share insights on technology transfer and innovation. Welcome, Anne. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to meet you. And I'm so pleased to be invited to do this podcast with you. Well, we're very excited to have you here. And I wanted to start off, Anne, by asking you about your journey into tech transfer. You have an absolutely incredible background, and I'm really curious to know how you got to where you are today and how you became CEO of UCLB. That's a really good question, Lisa. Actually, a lot of it happened by accident. Uh, It might look like it was carefully planned, but it really wasn't. Um, And actually, I think where I first got my taste for university commercialization and knowledge exchange was when I was doing a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. Uh, My PI at the time, so the principal investigator there, who was Icelandic, was setting up a company in Iceland and... uh, there were various things that happened that meant that he resigned from Iceland. And so I had no visa. I had an academic visa. And so I had no grant funding to carry on the research and uh, was looking for something else. And thought actually the commercialization side of things sounds quite interesting. I'd also realized as well when I was at Harvard that I was surrounded by a lot of brilliant scientists who were totally dedicated. And while I wasn't bad at science, I certainly wasn't brilliant like they were. And I had come to the realisation that I should let the people who were good at the science do the science. And then I would try and find something else to do, but that was related. So I had a friend of mine look at my CV to see if she could help with looking for an alternative job. And I ended up working for a spin-out company based on university IP in Montreal, which was trying to set up a biotech cluster at the time. So there were all sorts of tax incentives. And there were only about six people in the company when I started. It was a real baptism by fire because I come straight from the lab. And they funded me to do an MBA, an executive MBA. I was very, very lucky. 
And it was perfect because I could bring that experience from the classroom directly into work. And so you were working full time and also studying full time. Um, I have to say that bed shops became very attractive to me because all I wanted to do was sleep. So that was great. And that was really where that started. So I was in Canada for three years. And then one of my colleagues, uh, I like to think not that they wanted to get me out of the company, but showed me the advert for the role at UCL, which was at the time within a university department commercialising UCL research. And I had a fondness for UCL and applied for the job and got it. I have to say I'd only planned on being there for a year. And 23 years later, I am still there. Wow, it's amazing. You really found your calling then. Yeah. And I have to say, I love I love my job. I really enjoy being so close to the science and the technology without actually doing it myself. And there are people who are much better at doing it than I am. And I've had various different roles, both within the university and then within the company structure that we now work under and then became CEO when our last CEO retired in 2018. And I took up the role in 2019. And it's it's been fabulous. It's been great. And I think we have a great partner in UCL because they're very supportive of what we do. And because we're set up to focus on IP commercialization, I think that has really made our jobs easier. Well, it seems like you really found um, your niche because UCLB has had an amazing track record of success. And in fact, there's been a number of recent public listings and in fact, uh, licensing to IP, for example, to Biomarian for Valrox, which is an amazing treatment, I know, for hemophilia, which um, would be like a one-time treatment, which would cure the disease, which is incredible. You know, given that you've been there at UCLB for a while, what do you attribute these successes to and how do you think your approach to you approach tech transfer differently? I think the first thing I'd say is that we've got world-leading research at UCL particularly in the areas of gene and cell therapy. So for our NASDAQ listed companies, for instance, they've all been based on cell and gene therapy. So that's made a huge difference. In the UK, we've also had very strong translational funding. So to take things from the lab to the clinic, the MRC, so the Medical Research Council and Wellcome Trust funded translational work, that that really made a huge difference to what we were doing. I think there's a strong entrepreneurial culture across the UK, but I think particularly at UCL, and that's been encouraged with the uh, introduction of a department called Innovation and Enterprise. And we have a vice provost who is a very senior role at the university, basically the next one down from our provost, who supports Innovation and Enterprise. That's part of his remit along with research. And I think that pairing of research and innovation and enterprise is, is key. So there's an entrepreneurial culture there anyway. The university supports academics who pursue a commercial path too. And I think they also support us as a company. So we are allowed to retain some of our profits to reinvest into the company. They don't all go back to the university immediately. They do eventually because reinvesting in the company is reinvesting in the university. I think the other thing I'd say is we have a very strong investor network. So for instance, Syncona, which was originally part of the Wellcome Trust, it was the main investor in our gene and cell therapy companies. And they've made an investment decision that that was what they were going to invest in. So I think that's also helped 
I think lastly, I'd say that the fact that we're a company, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of the university, but we are all employed by the company and that we have around 60 employees at the moment means we can be agile. We can focus on the commercial pathway, whereas a big university like UCL, I think, would find that very difficult. Um, and so we have that commercial mindset, I think, and that makes that makes a big difference. We also have our own investment fund, and I think that has been key. So we have proof of concept and seed funding of around seven and a half million that we have set up from retained profits, so from IP income. We also have, well, we did have Apollo, and we can talk about that a little bit later because I think that that's one of the collaborations that have been very successful. And then the UCL Technology Fund. So we're currently in the second UCL Technology Fund, and that is a £70 million fund that, again, has a proof of concept element in it. And it won't just invest in spin-out companies. It also invests in projects that then go on to be the basis of a license with a commercial partner. And I think that makes it unique. And that has been particularly beneficial for us and really made a huge difference to the success that we've had so far. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I wanted to just ask you a little bit about your team. I mean, that's a fairly sizable group of about 60 individuals. Can you tell us about some of the different roles and functions that they have? Yeah. So, I mean, the way I describe it is it's a fully integrated tech transfer company because we we focus on faculty IP. So we don't deal with things like student entrepreneurship or consultancy or um, R&D collaboration. So contract research, industrial contract research. And I'd say our core competency really are our two teams of business managers who loosely are divided into one team that deals with biomedical technologies and one that deals with non-biomedical. Although increasingly we're seeing a lot of cross-disciplinarity there, particularly with things like AI getting much more involved. We have a team of lawyers that support them too, and they are a mix of company lawyers, intellectual property lawyers and patent lawyers. We have a project management team that has been instrumental in meaning that we have milestone-driven projects. So both in terms of the translational funding that we've been able to access and in terms of investment funding. So that has helped. And then we have our own finance team and our own operations team that make sure that everything works smoothly for that. Um, We have a small portfolio management team. And that's quite interesting because now we're sort of 30 years in. So it's our 30th anniversary this year. We have a large portfolio of assets. So both in terms of equity stakes and and licensing assets, which is currently valued at around £250 million. And those assets need managing. So for things like when we sell our publicly listed shareholdings, you know, that is quite an involved process to avoid things like insider dealing, for instance, which is a problem, you know. That'll get you in big trouble. That'll get us in big trouble. Um, And also, though, in things like companies that are private, but might have board involvement or shareholder involvement where we need to get involved. And then I also think in terms of the relationship management with our commercial licensees, that's key. So Biomarin, you mentioned at the beginning, we have a very good relationship with Biomarin. We have more than one license with them for a different technology. And I think that really is important to maintain that relationship. Absolutely. 
I wanted to go back Anne, and ask you more about some of these initiatives that you spoke of briefly uh, that you have to support entrepreneurship and innovation, such as the UCL Technology Fund. Can you talk in a little bit more detail about some of the benefits of these initiatives and how they contribute to the growth of the tech transfer ecosystem in the UK? Yes, I think we have a number of funding streams. And as I said at the beginning, translational funding, which is fairly early stage, has been crucial. There's also a number of other initiatives within the UK. So we have something called impact accelerator accounts, which are from UK research and innovation. So those really help for very early stage, high risk projects. We have Idea London, which is a partnership between UCL and Capital Enterprise, where companies are incubated. They're very much focused on non-bio projects, but that's that also helped. Um, we, you know, we have a partnership with the CRIC, which is a very prestigious research institute. And we're one of six partners, along with um, Imperial College, King's College, and then MRC, CR UK and Wellcome. There's the London Co-Investment Fund, which has been an investor in two of our spin-out companies, one of which was recently acquired. And I think having a range of different approaches to investment at different stages is really important. And then you add to that the UCL Technology Fund, and I think that has really helped. You mentioned collaboration. I think one of the key funding collaborations that we've had was Apollo Therapeutics. And I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It's now a biotech company, effectively. But originally, it was set up at the same time as we set up the UCL UCL Technology Fund. And it was with three universities. So us, Cambridge and Imperial, and then three big pharma. So GSK, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. And I think I mean, it's hard enough to get universities to agree amongst themselves how they're going to do something. And then it's hard to get three pharma to agree, but to get six of those to agree with each other. That's impressive. Yes, because I've worked with pharma. It's hard to get them to agree on anything. Hard, hard work. And uh, Rick Fagan in our team led on that from our side. And I know how many hours he put into that. And that was that was really great and made a huge difference to what we were doing, both in terms of the technologies that we could invest in. And the idea was that these would be projects that would become licenses that one of those big pharma partners might want to take on themselves. And originally, it was aimed to be a much more capital efficient way of doing that, because so often you license something to a big pharma and they redo the work you've been doing because it's not done to the way they want it or you know, whatever it might be, they want it done differently. And so this was a way to avoid that. Interestingly, none of the partners licensed anything from the universities. Um, We did license to uh, one American group in the end. And I think it was great from both sides that we realised that actually that might not be the best way to do things. But it gave us really clear insights into how the other side worked. And so I think when we did the first license agreement that came out of Apollo, the farm partners were very impressed with the license terms that we got, because I think they thought they won't be able to do it as as well as we will. So I think for a number of reasons, that was a great success. And as I say, it's now gone on to be a big biotech company with um, Patient Square Capital as the main investor, which was an American investor. So Things like that really help. And having those collaborations really make a difference to what we've been doing. 
Now, I wanted to ask you about 10U, uh, which is an international collaboration of 10 leading technology transfer offices. And you were the former chair of that organization. Can you talk a little bit about how 10U contributes to UCLB's efforts in fostering international collaboration and innovation? I mean, yes, it that was a really interesting initiative. And what we found was the main takeaway for all of us, I think, is that We've all got similar problems and challenges, and they're the same across the world. And it was really interesting to be able to share our experiences with each other and then the solutions, because I think it's the solutions that are different. It also helped to raise visibility with governments, both here in the US and also in Europe, because Casey Lurven is one of the members. It helps with career development for our teams, because we have a future leaders program that means tech transfer professionals from all of those offices. So it's Columbia, Stanford and MIT in the US and then Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, UCL, Manchester and Edinburgh in the UK and Casey Lurven. So they've all got very different structures. And I think I was talking to someone at Autumn uh, in Austin this year who said, when you've met one TTO, you've met one TTO. And I think that's it's just so true. So we all have slightly different structures. But I think the problems tend to be the same. And it led to the Use It Guide, which you mentioned earlier. So the University Spin Out Investment Terms Guide. And that, again, was inspired by the work that US universities uh, had done, led by Oren Kerskovitz at Columbia and Leslie Miller Nicholson at MIT. And that's also made um, our profile, I think, with government much more positive and also with the investor community because it really got us around the table um, and and helped to, I think, align what we were doing much more closely. So it's it's been great for that. I think having the six you, so the UK members also have meetings where we discuss UK challenges, um, ecosystems and what's going on at the time. And currently we have the Chancellor of the Exchequer's review of spin-outs in the UK. And having that group has has helped to bring us to the table so that we can have input into that review, along with Practice Oral, which is the UK-wide association to equivalent of autumn in the UK. Now, Anne, I wanted to ask you about diversity, equity and inclusion, because I know UCLB has been recognized for its effort in promoting gender equality in the tech transfer field. Can you tell us about some of the initiatives you've undertaken to promote diversity and inclusion? I think I would say we haven't done anything specific. What we do do is things like anonymize CVs when they come in. So you, you, you don't see how old somebody is or, you know, what what type of name they might have that would give you an indication of what their background was. I think we very much focus on recruiting on the basis of talent. And I think that if you start to just ignore certain groups from whatever background, then you're really not doing yourself any favours in terms of talent and you're restricting your access to talent. I think diversity of background in all areas, whether it's sex, whether it's ethnic background or whether it's experience is really important. I think the other thing I would say is that we very we're very keen on inclusion. So not just diversity in terms of recruiting a diverse group of people, but making sure that once they're within the organization, that they have the same opportunities as everybody else. 
and we try and develop people's careers as much as we can and provide training opportunities for them and networking opportunities. And I think it's critical to have that diversion and inclusion in a company, because, as I said, if you exclude any group, you're excluding talent. And I think if you look at UCLB, we're an extremely diverse organisation. As you go up, I mean, I still think we're diverse as we go up. And our board, we've been actively trying to look at our board members and our non-exec members to get a more inclusive and diverse group there. And I think we've I think we've certainly achieved that. And I think that echoes what UCL is doing in terms of its own governing body and within UCL too. So I would say it's crucial and I'd encourage anyone to make sure that they bear that in mind when they're looking at who they want in their organization and what they want the organization to achieve. So, Anne, I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball and and talk a little bit about where you see the future of technology transfer evolving and what role you see UCLB playing in shaping that future. That's a really good question. (laughs) I think I think the industry is much more sophisticated now. So I think when I joined UCL 20 years ago, you would put a license in place that usually you'd cut and pasted from somebody else's license agreement. And you wouldn't have included things like performance clauses or you wouldn't even have followed up. You'd have got it signed, put it in a drawer and moved on to the next one. And that's completely changed. So, So in terms of relationship management, that's really made a difference to how we do licensing and how we do spin outs. I think going forward, they will play a really important role in securing and protecting IP assets. Because I think that that's really important for investors and for commercial partners. So one of the first things an investor will ask is, do you own the intellectual property? How is it protected? And who have you protected it with? So, you know, if you if you use a firm of patent attorneys they're familiar with, that always helps. I think it's having having a sophisticated approach as well to how you protect your IP assets and not necessarily just through patents, because I know when I started, patents were everything. And now I think we approach protecting your IP rights in the way that's most appropriate for that technology and for how you want to take it forward. So things like software, for instance, and how you're going to approach that. We've developed much more much more useful and practical ways of commercializing those assets. And I think that will then help for things like AI, where AI is having a huge impact on things like, well, what do you patent? And is it the is it AI that's produced the invention? Is it a human? You know, there's a whole range of things there. I think that's probably unique to the UK is what's happening in Europe. So we've now got the Unified Patent Court and the Unitary Patent Application Process. Um, And I think that helps streamline the process across Europe, where it's not like filing a patent in the US, where you've got a much more uh, coherent system across the country. You know, each country is has an individual approach in Europe. I think that's made a difference. And I think supporting entrepreneurial ecosystems much more really helps and has helped us to get to the point we are certainly as UCL and UCLB within London um, and shown how industry and academia can work well together, both with Apollo, but also during the pandemic, where I think across the globe, actually, that that really showed 
that when the chips are down, everybody can work together. And I think the last thing I would say is that universities and HEIs, across, so higher education institutes, make an impact in their own right. UCL, for instance, has the same impact per year economically as the London Olympics had in the one time it was there. And that's a really impressive fact and something I think a lot of people wouldn't, they think about teaching and they think about students, maybe about research, but that makes such a difference. So you're having an impact directly just by being there in your own ecosystem. And then I think as things like the big global challenges of climate change, you know, AI, personalised, targeted medicine, things like our haemophilia treatment, that it's effectively a cure. That has changed the whole way of how do you price a therapeutic? What are the health economics for that? How is that going to impact on how you value your deals and how you do those? And we're right at the forefront of dealing with that type of thing. So I think there's a number of ways of doing it, both from the institution that you're involved with to your experience and being at the forefront of those fabulous technologies. Absolutely. And and as the podcast comes to a close, I just wanted to get your thoughts and maybe your advice that you would perhaps give to early career professionals who are interested in pursuing a career in tech transfer. You know, what would you tell them? And also what skills and experience do you think are most important for them to have success in this field? That's another good question. Um, and actually, it was something we talked about. So we had the leadership program for Praxis Oral last week. And that was one of the things we were talking about. And that basically, there's no one route into a tech transfer career. I think, you know, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to adapt. And I think take chances, because that's how I got into it. I didn't have a job effectively. And didn't have anywhere to live because I had to move countries. So I think that was that was key. And I think academic research experience is invaluable. Although I think when you are an academic, you sometimes think it's going to be the end of the world if you leave. But it isn't. And, and everyone I know who's done that has not looked back, re- not looked back, really. But I think if you've got some industrial experience or commercialization experience, or if you've worked in a spin out, that's also really, really valuable. But I would say don't let the fact perhaps that you haven't got a PhD put you off. I don't think you need a PhD. I think it's being adaptable, flexible and being able to see what the opportunities are and how you can make a real difference by actually being a facilitator for getting that fabulous research out to make an impact in the world outside of a university. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Now, it's been a pleasure to talk to you too, Lisa, and a pleasure to be able to talk about the great work I think that we're doing in terms of knowledge exchange. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more exciting conversations with industry experts. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? 
Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.